I came across a speech from Captain Sully this week, which really resonated greatly with me. This week's podcast will be about pilot training, the quality, the standards and the speed of which it's conducted, what experience and hours are needed for certain jobs, and what is enough to even do the job. It's concerning many in the industry, including myself, both internationally and here in Australia. And as I've already alluded to in other episodes, we need to work together to find ways to turn things around. All that coming up right after this. So strap in and let's get into it. G'day everyone and welcome to episode 57 of the Flight Training Australia podcast. A podcast all about flight training and flying in Australia and beyond. I'm your host, Trent Robinson. Thank you for joining me. Firstly, some exciting news last week, which uh, I can only put down to thanking all of you uh, for listening hard, downloading all the episodes because Flight Training Australia podcast has finally hit the number one Australian aviation podcast in the charts. I'm really, really humbled by this. Very exciting. Um, to be embraced and accepted by all of you is just fantastic. And I'm really excited to still be here putting out the podcast episodes each week and continuing to build it and bring you some great information, uh, some fun stories and adventures from myself and those that I interview along the way. So thank you so much for that. Please keep sharing it far and wide. And uh, thank you again for your support and those that have joined up on uh, Patreon to support me there financially. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So today's episode, as I mentioned in the intro, and as I've touched on in previous episodes, what I'm about to discuss is is based on my personal observations uh, over years, reading of articles, interactions with heads of operations and um, training, check and training captains and other pilots in industry. And it would appear that there is a systemic problem in the flight training industry, which is slowly getting worse. And not just here in Australia, but worldwide. And now that we're here in a pilot shortage situation, the pressure to churn out pilots as quickly and as cheaply as possible becomes even greater, particularly in airline cadet ship style training programs. But with this comes greater risk as inexperienced pilots are pushed through the system with minimal experience and exposure for making judgment calls, which could potentially result in reduced safety. So who is this episode aimed at? Well, everyone. Instructors, airlines, check and training uh, captains and pilots, aeromedical, passenger carrying transport operators, student pilots and the travelling public, it it affects everyone. And there's someone else who has similar concerns. Here's a piece of that speech I was talking about from Captain Sully Sollenberger. I want to share with you now some thoughts I've had for a long time, some precepts that I've learned that I think have served me well. I hope that you agree. Because we're facing great challenges now, There are still too many in industry who are trying to quicken and cheapen pilot training. 
for their own expedience and their own convenience, mostly for economic reasons, and using as an excuse an alleged pilot shortage, when what the industry should be doing is finding the best ways to arm pilots with what they need, knowledge, skill, experience, and judgment, and valuing this profession because it is one that is deserving of respect. I heard that and thought, yeah, wow, that's really what I've been feeling and thinking. And it really sort of opened my eyes uh, the last few months to the problem that I'm starting to see and operators are starting to see that pilots are showing up, uh, feeling like they're ready and qualified to do a job uh, when, unfortunately, they're just simply not. As always, I'm going to be very careful not to single out any individuals or operators, uh, be they uh, trading operators or, or, or charter operators. I'm not here to blacklist anyone, point accusations or sit on my high horse, uh, sit on my high horse like I'm just some super-duper special person and, and uh, not a part of this. this. This is a subject that's important to me and we all need to be aware and, and do our best to minimise the problem. But first of all, we need to be aware that there is a problem and we need to be realistic with ourselves as pilots as to when we're going into a job uh, that we're capable of doing it. Uh, and I'm not talking about before you've been trained to do something new, but carrying the skills and experience that you have supposedly already trained for and being able to offer that to your new employer. So what is it that I'm seeing and hearing that is concerning me and others so much? Well, obviously, as a flight examiner, I'm in a unique position to see all levels of pilots. Um, I get to see uh, you know, enough to engage with operators, um, fellow examiners, pilots throughout industry, and standards are falling. My wife and I were just talking about this the other day. And uh, I was trying to work out what to do and, and, and what to put into this episode. We both trained in the 90s. She's a commercial pilot and instructor, hasn't flown for a while now. Um, if you follow me on Instagram, you'll probably see that we've been doing a bit of flying together now as she's uh, embarked on her medical career and currently based over on the Tiwi Islands, using the opportunity to fly her over there uh, each week to get her up to speed again. Things were different then we had exposure to some very experienced and good instructors, a wide range of training aircraft, and, and nowhere near the limitations and restrictions on our flying training as we see today. Crosswinds, weather, we're out there. Um, we're allowed to go out flying. It wasn't anywhere near as restrictive as that. We, we had a chance to go out and make decisions and experience what it was like to be a pilot. My very first cross-country sort of solo uh, nav exercise as a private pilot was with two other uh, friends of mine where we flew down along the coast um, and uh, down to Albany from Jandicott and there were thunderstorms and, and, and weather all around. But we negotiated, we had our plans, we had our alternates, we had our alternate alternates and all that sort of stuff and we were trusted to to make good decisions and exercise the privileges of our license accordingly. This doesn't happen anymore. 
Today's students can't go if the cloud's too low or, or if the wind's one knot above the, the crosswind limitation in the POH. Many schools are training on one or two types of aircraft, resulting in a fully qualified pilot uh, struggling to fly something different when they get their first job. We're seeing pilots who have trained on glass cockpit aircraft struggling to transition to a high wing and a traditional six-pack. Why is this? And whose fault is this? Certainly in most cases, I don't blame the student. They're just working with what they've got and what they've paid for and, and the, the syllabus that they've been presented by the training provider. And they don't necessarily know any better. It's only once they start getting out into industry that they realise that they're well behind the ball. But this is why, as a student, looking for a flight training school or as an instructor in that school, it's important. It's absolutely crucial to understand the long game. You're not just training to get a licence. You're training to get a job and you're training to get as much experience in a relatively controlled, supervised, safe environment before heading out on your own. As my wife and I became instructors and charter pilots, we were fortunate enough to see both sides of the operation and got a good mix of hands-on and instructional flying. We, strew, we flew in strong weather, in strong crosswinds, gusty conditions, low cloud bases, and had the chance to make those command decisions. We did charter flights, freight, passenger, airwork operations, single-engine, twin-engine, VFR, IFR, survey, low level. We could pass on this knowledge and experience onto our students. But for most instructors, they don't have this experience. So thinking about it from a scale of knowledge and passing on experience, the standard can only do one thing, and that is fall. Because if you're being trained by someone who's only basing their training on the training they themselves received, it's going to reduce. Step by step, bit by bit, the standard's going to fall. And I really think that we're sitting in a situation now where this is becoming really, really prevalent and it's really starting to become a problem. I'm seeing people now with commercial licenses that I don't think would have even got a private license back when I flew. Harsh words, but there's something going on here. And again, I'm not blaming the individuals, but once you know this, then it's time to do something about it. And if you don't, well, then you've only got yourself to blame. I'm not going to pretend I've always felt this way. Maybe it's because I'm older and getting wiser, as they say. But when I train students now, I'm not just delivering a syllabus, but I'm training them to become the best knowledgeable pilots that can make good, sound judgments and ultimately to save their life. Sounds extreme and over the top, but think about it. One poor decision could mean the difference between going home or not. And there's plenty of incidents and accidents out there to back that statement. Take my main form of training, which is instrument ratings. 
The current trend at the moment is to take minimum time off work because, hey, we're at work. Don't want to spend all our leave time doing more flying and more training, do we? But take a minimum time off and go and get the training done and smash it out. Now, if you ask me and those in industry that are dealing with the consequences of this approach, IFR training is not something to smash out and get done. I've literally dealt with students only months out of their training and can't remember a damn thing. How can this be? As part of the flight instructor rating program, I deliver the PMI course, better known as the Principles and Methods of Instruction. It's essentially the teaching degree, or how to be a teacher, in a couple of days. And in that, we teach the learning process, the lowest level being rote, then understanding, application and correlation on the top. Licensed pilots are emerging after a training with rote memory actions. Now, rote, if you don't know what it is, is basically just do it. You don't need to know why. It's just because. Now, there are times where this level of knowledge is acceptable, such as the gear down speed is 140 knots. You don't need to know why or the research that went into it, just that if you don't do it, you could potentially cause damage. But when it comes to instrument flying and many other styles, but let's just talk about instrument flying for a minute. If you don't understand, um, let's say, the, the way a sector entry works or the capture regions, depending on the type of navade um, that you're referencing, so you can plan your arrival accordingly, you'll go on doing it wrong until someone picks you up on it. Now, is this going to get you killed? Probably not. It's just an example. But when someone needs the whole process explained to them, again, after supposedly just having passed a flight test, well, this is a big problem. What else don't they know? What else don't they fully understand? What else can't they apply and correlate to other situations down the track with different aircraft, in different weather, with different instrument and GPS layouts in the cockpit? This is a problem with the training provider, potentially the examiner who passed them and the pilot who now thinks they're qualified to conduct a form of flying that they're not proficient to carry out. As I touched on a few episodes ago, when you submit a resume with a bunch of qualifications on it, you are saying to a potential employer, here I am, this is all the things I can do, competently and proficiently. And this is what you offer compared to someone else on a different resume with less qualifications. And what you're basically saying is if you give me a job or going into line training and new aircraft types aside, I can perform those tasks. But in many cases, what we're seeing is this isn't happening. Pilots are showing up with impressive resumes, collecting all sorts of training endorsements and flight activities and ratings but can barely fly in a straight line and maintain height, let alone an instrument approach. And I'm not overreacting. Operators, instead of doing 10 hours or 15 or 20, 30, whatever their process is, is doubling the line training that's needed before they let pilots go out on their own. Larger operators with usually a 50-hour line training program are looking at more like 100 hours of line training. They're getting pilots who just don't have the basic fundamentals of IFR flying and are having to turn into IFR schools and retrain, which they are not equipped for 
nor should they have to be. So what does this mean for you? If you're a student choosing a flight school, choose wisely. Do your research, check out reviews, speak to current students and trust your gut. If you have your license and haven't flown for a while, then unfortunately it probably means a few more dollars. And I get it. Flying is expensive. Whenever I deliver training, I always do it in the most efficient way as possible as if I'm paying for it myself. But at the end of the day, you must find a way to maintain proficiency once you gain your qualifications. If you don't use it, you'll lose it. So does that mean that fast-track courses are dangerous? Well, no, of course not, not necessarily. They certainly aren't as good as, as what they possibly could be, for sure. The more time you can spend under tuition in an aeroplane, as long as it's from someone who knows what they're doing, the better. But it depends on who it is on that course and where they go afterwards. If it's an airline cadet school, they graduate and end up in an airline environment. They're going to remain under training and supervision for some time to come. This isn't as ideal, though, as they have very little experience. And I know of several occasions where an inexperienced first officer, for example, not up to the task, has had to be offloaded and undertake further training. This is effectively making it a single pilot operation. And this is obviously has huge ramifications on safety and the operation of that aircraft. I don't need to tell you that. But these are some of the challenges facing airlines. Many countries have to operate on their system successfully. During my time as the head of training for, at the time, the, the JAA or the JAR training, now EASA, uh, our students would graduate with a CPL, head across to the UK, to Bournemouth, conduct their instrument rating and MCC. As there's basically no GA sector in Europe, really to get experience, it was a common practice to then go on to something like a, a turboprop or 737 A320 or similar. And it could work with the right applicants. Other countries, maybe not so much. Again, that's a rabbit warren. I'm not going to go down now. I'm going to keep it GA focused and based on the Australian Airlines as your first job. But otherwise, this episode will go on forever. But trust me when I say there are too many people not recognising and mistaking their hours for experience. So what is experience? I've discussed this earlier. Hours don't mean experience. What was the makeup of those hours? How many aircraft types? What kind of flying? Where? In what airspace? In what weather? Thousands of hours just instructing or do the same flying job is not the same as a pilot who has done most of the above I just mentioned. It's important to gain as much experience as you can. And this is up to you to try and figure out the best pathway to do that with the kind of flying that's accessible to you. Flying up here in Northern Australia, for example, is some of the best experience you can get. But you need to be prepared. The flying, especially at this time of year, is at times incredibly challenging and can become dangerous very quickly if poor decisions are made through inexperience. Lives have been lost. My aim, and those instructors that I know, is to ensure that that doesn't happen. And that can only come from good, solid, 
training from those who know what they're talking about. As senior instructors and examiners, it's important that we pass on this knowledge to junior instructors through mentoring and guidance and telling stories, podcasts like this, so that we can all learn from each other. If we don't share this knowledge, then we're just being selfish. And that's the biggest goal of doing this podcast is to try and share as much of my experience as possible. And I can tell you now that I am still learning myself. It never, ever ends. As Captain Sullenberger said, we need to be finding the best ways to arm pilots with what they need. Knowledge, skill, experience and judgment so that we can all go home after shift. All right, guys, that's it for this week's episode. I hope it wasn't too deep. It is It is a topic that I'm very, very passionate about, and I would dearly love to hear your thoughts and feedback. Um, and, uh, yeah, any responses I'll include uh, in next week's episode. If you'd like to do that, uh, you can email me. All the details are in the episode description. Um, but you can flick me an email at info at trentrobinsonaviation.com.au. Uh, you can get me on Instagram and Facebook. Look for Trent Robinson Aviation. And I'd love to hear a review from you. Apple Podcasts, even if it's not your platform of choice, if you jump on there, you can leave a written review, um, five-star review, and also on Spotify. That would be amazing. It really helps the podcast be found by others. All right. Until next week, blue skies, stay safe, and remember the golden rule. Aviate. Navigate, communicate. Cheers, everyone.